Hey, I'm Danny Levy, and you're listening to Digital Transformation and Leadership. This is the show where we go behind the scenes with today's top business leaders to understand how they're digitally transforming their company. This week, I'm joined by Zenon Capron, the director of Capron Asia, one of Asia's leading financial technology, research, and consulting firms. Zenon is a recognized thought leader on fintech in Asia and a regular speaker at financial conferences globally including Money 2020, Trade Tech, and Cybos. He's testified in front of the US Congress on matters of China fintech, and is regularly quoted in the press and television appearances, including CNBC, Bloomberg, The Economist, The Wall Street Journal, and The New York Times, just to name a few. Zenon is the author of Chomping at the Bitcoin, The Past, Present, and Future of Bitcoin in China, as well as countless reports and commentaries on the state of financial technology in Asia. He's also a top voice on LinkedIn and talks about fintech, payments, digital banking, and financial services. My interview with Zenon is coming up next. Zenon, welcome to Digital Transformation and Leadership. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me, Danny. Yeah, thank you for, for coming on the show. Um, so Zenon, before we get started, would you be able to introduce yourself and, and what it is you do for our listeners? Sure. So um, as you mentioned, my name is Zenon Capron. Um, I started off my career uh, years ago. I studied computer science undergrad in, in the US, Canadian by birth, um, grew up in the US. Computer science joined Citibank uh, years ago, always on the technology side. So I started off with Citibank in New York, mm-hmm. was in Europe for about five years with them, always, again, on the technology side. When I finished in 2003, I was the head of technology for Citigroup in Portugal. And then uh, went back to do my MBA at INSEAD. And so that was the first time that I'd come to Asia in uh, January and February 2004. I distinctly remember celebrating the, the New Year's going into 2004 in mm-hmm. Bali, okay. uh, which was an amazing time to be there and, and yeah. much less developed than it is now. And so since, since that point, I've been based in Asia, uh, initially in China, uh, in Shanghai, yeah. working with Intel, looking after sales and marketing for the financial vertical. And then... It's around 2006, 2007, their focus shifted away from a, a vertical approach focused on financial services to more horizontal. Um, I had always had the itch to kind of start my own company. So in 2006, 2007, I set up Capranasia in Shanghai. And so since then, we've kind of grown and expanded. And, and now our headquarters is here in Singapore, where I'm based and moved down in 2018. But fundamentally, we provide consulting and market research services for the financial industry. So anything banking, payments, capital markets, and our clients tend to be either the large financial technology companies or financial institutions. So clients include Visa, MasterCard, DBS, Finastra, Ripple, companies like that, that have a need to understand what's happening in Asian markets. That's uh, quite the career path. And um, how, how have you found the entrepreneurial journey as uh, on setting up your own business and running your own company for all these years? Oh, comes with certain challenges, but very rewarding at the same time. It is. I... 
I really do love it today. I mean, obviously there are there are times and challenges. I, yeah. I I remember kind of 2000, probably 2010 or 2011, posting how I had less than one renminbi in my Chinese bank account at one point. So it, yeah. it definitely, you definitely had points, and and the struggle is real to a certain extent. But yeah, I, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, I. I had all the opportunities with me, you know, yeah. coming from a, a solidly middle class background and, you know, always had things to fall back on. So it, it, with that support and the support of my parents and family at the time was was really useful. And and now to see what we've built and the brand that we have within the market is is quite rewarding and, yes. and quite satisfying. Any advice you've got for any kind of aspiring entrepreneurs or maybe people that are early on in their journey? It's interesting because I think you need to be realistic, but at the same time, unrealistic. I mean, yeah. you need to be realistic because the the challenge that we have is the the startups that you hear about are the ones that are successful, right? So you yeah. hear about fundraising, you hear about companies expanding, but for every successful startup, there's tens, if not hundreds of companies that didn't make it. Mm -hmm. So it's very easy to come into this mindset and say, oh, I'm going to be the next XYZ, whether that's, I mean, in the US, it tends to be Uber or Amazon. Yeah. Now I'm going to be the Amazon for this or the Uber for that. But you, you need to be realistic about what you can accomplish. But then at the same time, you need to be somewhat unrealistic in terms of, you know, for most people, the most comfortable path is the career path. And, and that's very, it's very, it's a very good way to go, right? Because mm -hmm. it, you know, provides you a stable paycheck, you know, enables you to have a family and not worry about things for the most part. But with being an entrepreneur and doing your own thing, obviously a lot of that certainty is out of the window. So that it's not a logical choice uh, from a from a risk reward perspective because mm -hmm. the chances are a lot of people won't make it. Uh, a lot of startups won't make it. But at the same time, the the rewards and getting into a position where you kind of own your own destiny through what you're doing mm -hmm. is is immensely satisfying. Couldn't agree more. I think. Had my own my own small taste of it, not not as much as you, but uh, even even if you do exit, it, like uh, I did, and uh, when I had my own company, but then when you go back into the corporate world, wow! I mean, you've learned so much. Um, I almost f thought of it as my own kind of mini MBA. Those those few years of <laughs> running my own company. For sure, yeah, yeah. And, and and I distinctly remember when I started my career at Citibank. I was I was working in New York, and mm -hmm. there would be people that would come in and they would just work nine to five. And you know, I, I look back at how productive I was at that time, and and my productivity as a percentage of how productive I am today was probably in the single digits percentage wise. Uh, but you you learn a lot about yourself, about work, about what's important, and that's a valuable asset for another startup. You know, if you if you do exit and move into another startup or a corporate mm -hmm. or whatever it is, uh, that set of skills, values, and understanding is is pretty incredible. Yeah, completely agree. Um, Zelen, so just before we get into the topic for the day, we're going to go through a, a quick round of five rapid fire icebreaker questions. Are you ready? Yes, yes, let's do it. Okay. What's your strongest skill? Uh, it sounds strange, but kind of ignorance. You know, I go into a lot of situations not knowing what the outcome is going to be, but um, understanding that the experience is part of the journey and, and approaching things that way. Nice. How, how would your friends describe you? I mean, I'm certainly an introvert. I'm an, I'm an extrovert when I need to be, but mm -hmm. uh, I would hope they would say, uh, you know, trustworthy, honest, dedicated, driven, and family-focused. Very good. Have you ever met one of your heroes? 
uh, this is going to sound so trite, but really my parents, um, you know, being, yeah. being a parent myself, much like you, Danny, I mean, yeah. the, the sacrifices that you make and the focus that you have, I think it's only when you have your own kids, you realize how much your parents have actually done for you. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I'm in my forties and I was 42 when my first child was born and it's a bit late to have that realization, but it makes you appreciate them so much more. And, and what they did for me was really, um, it was really amazing. Nice. Senan, has a book ever changed your life? It's kind of a combination of reading about books, about life and the the journey that we're on is is really the approach that we we do have one shot at this this life that we're given. And so really taking advantage of the experience and prioritizing things that are important. I think one of the things that's been really important to me over this journey is to still keep close to my family. Yeah. And I've heard a lot of founders or a lot of corporate executives that essentially are, you know, retire and then try and get back in touch with their kids and, mm-hmm. and trying to rebuild all those things. But I think maintaining that focus on what's important is really critical. And there, there are a number of books around that, both yeah. in terms of understanding about life and keeping that focus. But those, those kind of series of books have, have really been the most impactful for me, for sure. Okay, I'll have to have a look at those. Really important. Um, what's the best place you've ever traveled to? Uh, there's so many. I, I, was, I was very lucky when I was with uh, Citibank that I lived. I lived for a certain period of time in London. I lived for yeah. a year and a half in Zurich, two years in Portugal, and then you know traveled to Brazil and South Africa, and then obviously around Asia. There's so many places out there. It's very difficult to to pick just one. But I think my time in Portugal was was pretty amazing. Lisbon is is such a multicultural city, and and so many so much good food and so many things to do. That was probably one of the best places. Not technically traveled to, but lived in. Uh, but really, is, is still part of me even 20 years later. Thank you for sharing, Zen, and really, really appreciate it. Um, so, so let's get into the topic for today, and we're going to be talking about dispelling m- misconceptions around payments cultures in Asia. Uh, and really excited, I was like uh, uh, an episode and talking around misconceptions. It's uh, not always the norm, so so really, really keen to unpack all the points we've we've got to go through today. Uh, and we're going to kick off looking at the the surge in digital payments in 2020, and, that, and particularly after that happened in Asia, we we hear a lot about the shifting at a, a really rapid pace to digital payments, and the region becoming completely digital in the very near future. Wanted to get your your thoughts on this. Yeah, it's certainly. I think when we came out of the pandemic, digital was the narrative, and I, for many places, I mean, here in Singapore, I, I rarely touch cash, even in the honker centers, and in the heartland where where you and I live, Danny, kind of far away from the city. It's it is very local in many ways, but digital payments have really taken over. Yeah, but it's when you get to other areas. Uh, we we do quite a bit of work with the United Nations across various different parts of the organization. And, and one of the projects that we were doing was working with the Central Bank of Solomon Islands and UNCDF. And, and we took a trip out to the Solomon Islands about two months ago. And it, it, for those of your listeners who don't know, and the Solomon Islands is predominantly powered by diesel insofar that, yeah. you know, on a daily basis or by daily basis, uh, tankers come in, drop off diesel fuel, and that provides the electricity for the island and, and they're moving towards hydroelectric and some solar but you know getting solar out there is very expensive and the hydroelectric project is, is very challenging mm-hmm. and while we were out there the the 
multiple times during the the week and a half that we were there, the power would go out. So you'd be sitting in a cafe having a conversation and and the power would just go out. Um, And and for many of the people that live in Solomon, it's kind of par for the course. That's just what happens. And indeed, a bit like earthquakes in California, if you ever ever have a minor tremor with a Californian, they'll just continue sipping their coffee or eating without paying it much attention. And it's kind of the same thing on Solomon Islands. But when when you think about that environment, I mean, obviously, digital by its nature, in most cases, needs to have some kind of electricity involved in it. I mean, even when you do the, you know, paying for duty-free on planes, in theory, there's no connectivity uh, mm-hmm. necessarily when you, when you make those. So the card companies have a number of different technologies, store and forward and ways of making that transaction. But you have to have some kind of electricity for digital payments. But in certain cases, I mean, even in the main city of Hanaria there in Solomon Islands, you could be without power. Uh, and then when you think about getting out into the hinterlands there, you'll have one cell tower in each community, and the cell tower is also fueled by diesel. Mm-hmm. So those will go down. So in a place like Solomon Islands, it, 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 you don't need to really understand payments to understand why cash is so important there. It's because when you don't have electricity and you don't have this infrastructure, having physical cash to use to buy what you need on a daily basis is is amazingly critical. And so I think, you know, whilst we do have this narrative of everything going digital in Asia, I think there are certain pockets where we're still a long ways from going digital because mm-hmm. those basic infrastructures that we need to have, not even, not even the technology infrastructures, but basic electricity uh, are not there. And so we often, when you live in a developed environment like Singapore that has, you know, fiber optic broadband and 5G and all of this, mm-hmm. we take it for granted. But in some of these markets, it's quite challenging. So that that idea that everything's going digital after the pandemic, it, it is true in many places, mm-hmm. but we still have ways to go in many places across Asia, uh, similar to the Solomon Islands, where there is much more basic infrastructure questions that we need to look at. And uh, Zen, I'm... I'm- interested to get your thoughts i mean and in places where the infrastructure needs are much greater and you're saying digital payments are way off do, do you see that that when they then the infrastructure would be developed there because there isn't kind of that legacy a lot of those legacy issues actually it could be developed at quite a rapid pace um when that does come around or um do you still see that even on the development side that's still just a ways off for places like the solomon islands yeah, in the long term, digital payments yeah. work everywhere. Right? Yeah. If we look, you know, twenty years out, and if you think about the Solomon Islands again, mm-hmm. you know, the the hydroelectric um, uh, project is is happening in the main province where the main city and area is. Yeah. But getting that electricity out to the hinterlands requires, you know, another set of investments to provide the electrical infrastructure to get out mm-hmm. there, and that that's not there either. But in the long term, if we look. 20, 30 years out, of course, that infrastructure will be there, yeah. but it's just going to take a lot of time. So I think certainly when we do have those those basics in place, you know, a lot of the younger generation, whether they be here in Singapore or in the Solomon Islands, are very used to digital platforms for socializing and everything else. So it just makes sense that the digital platform in, in basically your phone becomes your main point of interaction mm-hmm. with 
uh, money and finances. So it's kind of inevitable that it'll happen in that direction. And, and especially in places where the infrastructure isn't there. I mean, mobile yeah. money, mobile money, which is effectively SMS based, uh, payments and transfers and banking is taking off at places like the Solomon islands mm-hmm. where there is a certain amount of infrastructure and there is consistent internet access to, to be able to send money, uh, using mobile money, m- mobile money, digital wallets. Yeah, yeah. So there, there are changes there and many adapted to the, to the local infrastructure, but at the moment, uh, in some places it's just slow going. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, if we change pace a little bit, if we kind of look at super apps, so, uh, super apps have been kind of very talked about, very in focus in Asia for for more than a decade, and the ecosystem's really been dominated by these kind of so-called super apps. If we look at platforms like WeChat and Alipay, uh, they are, they offer an enormous network of services in one integrated app. Uh, something Elon Musk has re- recently labelled an everything app as he transitions Twitter to X and tries to get people on the platform for for longer doing everything they need in, in one place. I'm interested to get your thoughts on kind of what constitutes a super app and are all platforms that are regarded as super apps worthy of the title? Yeah, and I was living in China from 2004 to 2018. Mm-hmm. So really saw the rise of the super apps, Alipay being one and WeChat mm-hmm. really being the most obvious one. The thing that we brought to the table initially was communications, right? So they mm-hmm. had the, um, before WeChat, there was a platform called QQ Messenger, mm-hmm. which is kind of like the the old Yahoo Messenger, if you're familiar with those days. Mm-hmm. I, I think you, you and I go back far enough. Yeah. Yeah, 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 we know about those. Maybe some of the younger, younger generation will file that under cassette tapes as well. Yeah. But, uh, so WeChat gradually became the dominant social platform or communications platform, I should say, with uh, for millennials and individuals to communicate with each other, to do business and otherwise. And it really was the default app. When I was living in China, the first app that I would open on my phone every day was inevitably WeChat because there would be numerous conversations to catch up on and, and friends to communicate with. So by its very nature, it became a, a, a central point and a very sticky app just for the communications. And then when they started to integrate things around payments, around wealth management, it was just a natural fit where the app became the destination for all of these mini functions or mini apps that were there. So initially that was ride hailing you could do within the app, uh, some basic finance, you could do payments obviously within the app. And then it expanded to travel and all of the other activities that you can do within a WeChat app. Mm -hmm. And, And that, I think the critical thing for both of both Alipay and WeChat have been the the fact that they have that that one function that is the sticky part, right? So yeah. beyond communications, Tencent obviously has a media and entertainment empire as well. Yeah. And so that that became the sticky point. WeChat became around entertainment, socializing, whereas Alipay was all around e-commerce. Yeah. And so these these two apps were the most obvious apps that everybody else would use on a regular basis. I think the challenge in Southeast Asia is if you look at where these apps are coming from, let's just use Grab uh, in particular, is it something that we know about? You may use Grab twice a day, three times a day, um, mm-hmm. maybe if you've got a, lead, a lot of meetings four times per day, but it's your it's not your default go-to app. Uh, your default app is probably WhatsApp or 
um, email, but it, it, it generally is not going to be grabbed because you're not socializing on there. You're not, uh, you know, some people buy groceries on there, but it's not, it's not a very sticky platform. And I think that's where a lot of these, this narrative around super apps in Southeast Asia is a bit overblown because everybody saw what was happening in China and said, okay, we got to do that. We got to become the super app of Southeast Asia. But it, it, doing that or saying that and actually doing it are, are really two different things. And these, these organizations and platforms have really struggled to get that level of stickiness because they don't have that, that key uh, anchor of, again, in the case of Tencent and WeChat, mm-hmm. the entertainment and social. And then in the case of Alipay, the, the e-commerce side of things, they just don't have that to be able to keep people coming back to the app. They're clearly trying, though, right? I mean, they keep the, if, you, if we look at apps like Grab, I mean, they, they're putting in new features, new tools, investments, and uh, shopping and other things, but they just don't have that stickiness, as you say, right, to kind of keep people in the app for an extended period of time. Yeah, and, and I think the only other app that probably has the opportunity to do that but might be stymied a bit by internal organizational struggles is uh, WhatsApp. Yeah. Because, and that is, you know, there's hundreds of millions of Indians that use WhatsApp on a regular basis mm-hmm. across Southeast Asia. You know, it's a very common way of communicating. So that would be the only other app that I would see that really has the opportunity to be a uh, a super app within the region, but it's not a direction that Meta has really gone with the platform mm. beyond a couple of you know payments, payments integrations in particular markets. But yeah, the the other apps, I think they they're just struggling to find that stickiness. Yeah, Gojek seemed to have a bit more of stickiness in Indonesia specifically. Didn't I mean you you could do a lot of different things within the app, and given the kind of traffic realities there, having someone come on a bike to kind of drop a loaf of bread and some milk off was, was quite useful. Did you, did you see that Gojek in Indonesia has it more or are they still a way off of where uh, the Chinese super apps are? Still a way off, but definitely further along than many of the other players across the region. I mean, Gojek has a tremendous home court advantage in Mm -hmm. Indonesia that they've leveraged really well. And, and companies like Grab have struggled to get market share in that space for much of the same reasons. I guess the only other app that I would see across Asia um, that kind of matches the the super app idea or uh, mm. focus that WeChat or Alipay have would be Kakao uh, yeah. in Korea. Mm. I mean, just the the amount of integration across payments, banking, and and other products and services, and, and the fact that it is a social app as well, communications app has really helped them to kind of put cacao a little bit in that direction yeah well what is it do you think that's held the kind of the apps back in southeast asia is it just the partnerships is it regulation is it not having a 10 cent like um um parent where you can leverage that entertainment channel is there anything specific the the way that I mean, the history of WeChat is really interesting. WeChat was originally just a side project that was being used internally at mm-hmm. Tencent and and not really seen initially as a commercial product that then, of course, became a commercial product and now is one of the most used social and communications platforms globally. I think to a certain extent, when you look at becoming a super app, it's becoming a super app really shouldn't be the focus. The focus should be on providing customers uh, products and services that they can use. But 
if we look kind of five years ago when this super app narrative was really mm. taking hold in Asia to raise funding, to gather investor attention, to to fuel marketing campaigns, many companies were saying, hey, I'm a, I'm a super app and I'm, I'm driving in this direction without really focusing on, okay, what what are the fundamental aspects that that make you a super app and what are the the things that you should be focusing on? And that I think has that and kind of strategic shifts in importance of various things that some of these companies are focusing on has really limited them from capturing that uh, that that focus that's needed to become yeah. a super app. Yeah. Do you, do you see the terminology staying or do you, do you see some of these companies maybe pivoting and maybe looking at the kind of category design and... <laughs> almost rebranding in the near future yes i i think the the narrative has somewhat gone away from super apps to more yeah. embedded finance mm -hmm. and and that's something through i mean if you look at the various jurisdictions around asia obviously in australia it's very regulator mandated so mm -hmm. you know every every bank in australia needs to have open banking which is enabling fintechs and other third parties to tap into bank accounts to check balances initiate payments all of this the the bsp in the philippines is moving forward with open banking um, more of a guided it's not required in philippines but more of a guided approach to mm -hmm. open banking and so this idea of embedded finance i think is really uh taking off a bit more than than before yeah and I think there's a lot of opportunity around that because it allows, you know, banks to stick to what they're good at, which is yeah. large balance sheets, deposits, withdrawals, and then allows third parties to come in and have a, a much better say in kind of the products and services that are going out to the market. Yeah, interesting. If we if we change it up a bit and we look at buy now, pay later, Zenon, um, again, this was kind of one of the areas that, that was very um, talked about, uh, what was it, 12 months ago, 18 months ago, a lot of funding in the space. Um, that clearly it's it's still there. You can you can use a multitude of buy now, pay later options still as a consumer. Um, do, do you see buy now, pay later replacing traditional credit cards anytime soon in in regional markets like Indonesia? I think that's really the point, is in particular markets, uh, buy now, pay later makes a lot of sense. Mm. Here here in Singapore, I mean, I, I think it has picked up, yeah. uh, but because of card penetration being so high here, hasn't really gotten the traction that it has or potentially could have in other markets. Mm. Indonesia is a great example, right? Because Indonesia is credit is a little bit more difficult to get there. There's yeah. a challenge with financial inclusion. And so in markets like that, where there isn't kind of the traditional financial services options for individuals or businesses to take advantage of, uh, buy now, pay later makes a lot of sense. Now, that's not to say it's without not without risks, because mm -hmm. there are certainly risks. And, and we've seen that kind of when the non-performing loan rates in Australia and some of these other markets where uh, buy now, pay later has really grown rapidly. But it does provide a bit of a lifeline to individuals or businesses who couldn't get financing before. So there is definitely, there's definitely value there, depending on how the the buy now pay later is structured but at the end of the day i mean it is another form of consumer credit yeah. that regulators are increasingly paying attention to and cracking down on to make sure that it doesn't get out of control and we have uh issues around the uh consumer credit issues or anything yeah. else yeah yeah makes sense and how about um, it's been kind of well publicized recently around um 
government-led domestic card networks and the likes of MasterCard and Visa uh, being phased out, especially in some of the regional ASEAN markets. Um, what, what, what's your thoughts here on, on kind of the usage there with, with some of the kind of big existing payments networks? Yeah, the the development of real-time payments networks across the region has really kind of opened up a new way for individuals to pay digitally, where it was, whereas previously it was obviously around cards. And yeah. for, for strange reasons, like here in Singapore, ATMs are not interoperable. Uh, which is which is kind of odd when you look at other markets where you mm-hmm. you typically have full interoperability between between the cards. But for yeah. what is kind of regulatory reasons or competition reasons, the industry here has decided not to have uh, interoperable ATMs. And just and just for the listeners, I guess that don't maybe didn't understand that Zen. And so what that means is that depending on the on the on the bank that you go with your card may not work at all the different ATM machines in Singapore. So you could go to a DBS machine, for example, with a standard chartered card, and you wouldn't be able to withdraw cash. Yes, yeah. if you're using the local networks. Now, if, you're, if your standard chartered card is a Visa or MasterCard, then, mm-hmm. then you could usually across those networks. I bank with Standchart, and you can't use a DBS machine to withdraw money. Yeah, I know it's it's one of the things that I think struck me when I first got here is you you yeah. walk back a you'll walk by a bank of ATMs where you have yeah. a, an OCBC a UOB a DBS and there will be a huge line for DBS but then mm-hmm. no lines for OCBC and but it, fundamentally the governments want to make payments cheaper for individuals and and importantly merchants especially the SMEs and when you look at SMEs across the region, they really are the bedrock of economic growth, uh, mm-hmm. you know, whether that be in China or Singapore. All of these companies were SMEs at one point and through you know, what in theory would have been sensible regulation and development, these companies have grown to be the, the larger corporates that they are today. Mm-hmm. And so the government, as much as they can, they want to lower costs for these companies and for these individuals. And indeed, when you look at one of the things surprised me when I first traveled abroad uh, after living, after coming to Singapore is I had a Singapore credit card. Yeah. And I went to Thailand and I was going to use the Singapore credit card, but then I realized the Singaporean bank would charge me three and a half percent to pull money and then whatever the exchange rate would be. And then the ATM in uh, Thailand charged the equivalent of another kind of two or three percent. So a transaction, a card transaction would all of a sudden be five or six percent cost. Now that's of course cross border, mm-hmm. but you look domestically and you know, I'm sure you have this around where you are as well. You'll go to one of these smaller hawkers and, and certainly they accept cards or QR mm-hmm. code payments, but they typically have a minimum, right? They have a minimum of $20 or yeah. $30 before it makes economic sense for them because the cost of them accepting a digital payment is just too high. And that's a bit, it's a bit ludicrous. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it really shouldn't be the case. Digital payments should be uh, nothing's nothing's free because you you know you have to pay the people that provide the fraud prevention and the cybersecurity and all of this. So I don't yeah. believe that payments should be completely free, but they should be cheaper than they are. And so I think as we see success stories like UPI in India as an example, I mean UPI has done a tremendous amount to really alleviate a lot of the payment challenges that that country faced historically. And so as we start to see other countries across the region look at these kind of domestically developed card rails, there's a lot of benefits for the SMEs and consumers in that space. Interesting. Um, if we if we 
go to digital banks, um, there's a number of digital banks, clearly globally, across Asia, a um, number of, of, of central banks are, are granting digital banking licenses now across ASEAN, Thailand. In terms of a digital bank, is there, is there kind of a commonly held belief that you passionately disagree with? <sighs> I mean, anybody who's read our commentary on our website can see that we're a little bit skeptical of the digital bank value Mm -hmm. proposition. In theory, it makes a lot of sense, right? There's there's no reason. I mean, I I haven't had to visit a a bank branch, save for closing an account a couple months ago. Mm -hmm. I haven't had to visit a bank branch in probably the past couple of years, and 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 that not that I would have done that much more so before before the pandemic, but certainly after the pandemic, I really see no reason to go to these branches. So the idea of a digital-only bank would seem to make a lot of sense. But mm-hmm. the the challenge is that in a place like Singapore, we're tremendously banked, right? 98% yeah. of the population, including foreign workers, has access to traditional banking services. And so when you have that level of penetration, it becomes very challenging to figure out what you're going to offer that's different than what's already in the market. So if we look at, you know, DBS is a good example. I mean, DBS has a digital bank offering called Digibank, mm-hmm. and you just uh, download the app. And I, I tried this out one time, completely signed up online. So okay. I, I mean, I have a, a permanent resident here, so it's a little bit easier for me to yeah. use my info and all of this, but it was seamless, you know, and I got the card a couple of days later, and this is a traditional bank that's doing this. And one of the one of the I was debating somebody on LinkedIn around this that they they said uh, you know but with with one of the new digital banks you can get your card issued immediately your credit card issued immediately yeah. within the app and then your physical card comes a couple of days later and I said well yeah that's fine but when have I when have I absolutely needed to have a credit card today yeah, yeah I've already got four or five credit cards in my wallet I don't if I wait a couple of days for it, it's not a game changer for me. Like it doesn't really move the needle. And I think that's the challenge for digital banks in developed markets like Singapore mm-hmm. is what are you going to do that's different? And and furthermore, what are you going to do that's different that differentiates you uh, longer term, right? Because what we've seen in Hong Kong, uh, HSBC as an example, used to charge 25 Hong Kong dollars per month for having the pleasure of having a consumer bank account. And they used to charge for payments and everything else. But as the digital bank launched, uh, HSBC realized that, you know, if they weren't going to lose market share, they had to change their business model. And so now an HSBC account in Hong Kong has very, very few fees. And Mm -hmm. we, we kind of forget about the fact that these traditional banks can innovate as much as the digital banks. And that's what we're seeing in a lot of these markets. And so Yes. Uh, okay, fine. So a new digital banks can issue a credit card directly in the app, but there's nothing to stop a traditional bank from doing that as well. Uh, they could very easily do that. Now, where there is real opportunity for digital banks is in emerging markets or markets where there are a lot of underbanked or unbanked. So if you look at uh, the Philippines, Indonesia, Vietnam, the digital banks that have set up there are, are really offering a differentiated service mm-hmm. because for many of the same reasons we talked about with the Solomon Islands, you know, that's Solomon Islands across has less than 50 ATMs across the entire country and less than 13 bank branches across the entire country. And that 
level of penetration is difficult and challenging, especially you know for an individual who may have to travel a day to get to the branch to pull cash or deposit cash becomes really challenging. And so in those markets where the financial infrastructure isn't there, but the technology infrastructure is in terms of you know wireless networks, 4G, 5G, whatever it is, mm-hmm. that's where the digital bank value proposition really makes a lot of sense. In addition, you know, digital banks typically, because they're digital first, have a little bit of a better view and credit scoring. Yeah. And so the ability to provide those banking services and lending services on top of it is very important for a lot of these individuals. And so that's that's really where we see the opportunity in the emerging markets is where they have these these financial inclusion challenges. And that's where digital banks can really have a, a strong role to play. Do you think they can do anything in the more kind of um, mature markets? Is there a sweet spot for digital banks in terms of that stickiness that they they could compete? Or do you think the future really lies outside of the mature markets where um, people are a bit more underserved? I think there are in particular niches. So here in Singapore, like the SME segment is really poorly served. And I can Mm. speak of personal experience on this. I I remember with my, uh, we bank, our corporate bank is with one of the three large banks here in Singapore. And I remember when we first set that up in 2016, 2017, we had an issue with the account and we had to have somebody take a look at it and kind of solve the issue. And I called up the the hotline and I said, look, we're having this this problem. Is there anything you can do to help? And they said, well, you need to talk to your relationship manager to yeah. solve this. And I said, okay, great. Um, I didn't realize that I had a relationship manager. Can you give me his or her name? And I'll give them a call. And then the, you know, I hear this clacking away in the background as the person is typing and they say, oh, uh, you don't have a relationship manager. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the challenge is because you know, we, we are pretty much an SME. Uh, and so we're not going to get the same level of treatment that a corporate gets, that a, a Singtel would get or a, you know, any of the larger companies here in Singapore. So yeah. how do you cost effectively serve this particular segment of the market? And, it, and it's very difficult to do. And, and with our corporate bank now, you know, we have a US dollar account, we have a mm-hmm. RMB account, and we pay $40 a month for the privilege of having a RMB account, or, mm-hmm. sorry, a, a, a Singapore dollar account, yeah. and $25 a month for the, for the privilege of having a US dollar account, which is ridiculous. I mean, yeah. we, we already spend enough there to make enough money off of us on FX and everything else. So I think we're, what I'm really interested to see is some of the banks that are a little bit more focused on the SME segment of the market. And the the Ant Group Bank here uh, in Singapore is a really good example of that and how they're really just focused on SMEs with a value proposition. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, transfers are free. FX is cheap. You actually get interest on your account as well, which is yeah. remarkable. So, uh, so, you know, I think those very niche value propositions in a place like Singapore have, have a lot of value. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But yeah, I say often if you niche down, they're, they're the things that, that, that make the biggest difference, aren't they? Especially when you're running your own business, as you said. Yeah. Yeah. Zenon, we're, we're almost at the end. I wanted to ask you uh, about your, your future predictions. Um, what, what's your kind of counterintuitive, half crazy prediction about the next five years for the payments industry in Asia? I don't know if it's half crazy. It's probably <laughs> 25% crazy. Uh, but I really think. Uh, there's a lot of um, challenges that the fintech space is going to be 
facing over the next couple of years. I think we've already seen fundraising drop a lot. You know, anecdotally, I've heard from friends who are, you know, their teams and some of these fintechs are halving, going from mm-hmm. 60 people down to 30 people as they face challenges in fundraising. You know, when we talked before, five years ago, it was super apps. A couple of years ago, it was blockchain. Now it's mm-hmm. AI. I mean, all of these buzzwords are being used to raise funds at what were ridiculous valuations pre- previously. Yeah. Uh, but I think a lot of that will slow over the next couple of years as we're in this high interest rate environment. And we're already starting to see that, but I, I think we really haven't felt the pain uh, around that. And I think we'll start to see that a lot more where a lot of these smaller companies really struggle because in a zero interest rate environment, when you're borrowing more money, it's it's very mm-hmm. cheap. And so you can kind of keep an unsustainable business model going. But all of a sudden, you know, in this four to six percent uh interest rate environment that we're in depending on the country that becomes a lot more challenging and so i i say semi-crazy because i I don't think it's i don't think it's really that far out there that Mm -hmm. this could be the scenario it's more it's 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 more the probability of it happening than if it could happen within that and i you know there will obviously be winners right Mm -hmm. but it it will force a lot of the fintechs to kind of buckle down and think about what they're doing and what their business model is because the idea of having an unsustainable business model in this economic environment just won't fly anymore yeah yeah it's the um what you mentioned at the start as well right around um the likes of uber getting all the attention when they're burning through cash actually it's the the companies that figure out their business model and are bootstrapped and start to turn profits and are sustainable that, that will win out in the future. Yeah, exactly. So uh, Zenon really enjoyed the conversation today. Um, a lot of awesome takeaways. Thank you very much for, for coming on and sharing everything with, uh, with the listeners. Um, just before we finish, I just wanted to ask you one final question. It's something I ask all my guests. Um, could you share one life or career lesson with us? Yeah. And, and just as I was thinking about this question, um, I kind of came back to the original question around the books that have impacted me. And one, mm-hmm. one of the books that I found really interesting was Sapiens. And so one of the critical theses of Sapiens is that the idea that we all live in these kind of collective fictions about what a career should look like around money itself. I mean, money is basically paper, has yeah. no, uh, you know, it's something that we've collectively agreed has value. Yeah. I think one of the things that it, it took me a while to realize about my career is that we all have these visions of, you know, we step up in our career and we move to the next level of management. But in many cases, these are really kind of fictions. And the idea that our career has to go in a particular direction or, mm-hmm. you know, we shouldn't take risks because it'll affect our, our, our career limiting move. I guess this is part of the way of being an entrepreneur is that you can do whatever you want. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, you know, just by the nature of somebody having the resources, the listeners having the resources to be able to take time out of their run or whatever else to listen to this podcast means that you have a lot of the tools in your hands to really affect the direction of your life. And I think that's really important to, to really do something that you love and, and don't worry about the, the career trajectory and, and kind of the fictions that we have around our working environment, but focus on what's important and what's going to give you meaning. Fantastic. Zenon, how can people get in touch if they'd like to find out more? Well, one advantage of being a Zenon is that there's not many of us <laughs> out here, and especially that many in Singapore. I might be the only one, but um, so it's you just search for Zenon, Z-E-N-N-O-N on uh, social media or LinkedIn, and you, you can find me there. And then, of course, our cap, our, our company is called Capron Asia, K-A-P-R-O-N Asia.com. And yeah, 
ha- happy to um, chat with anybody who might have more questions about what we do or, or some of the thoughts that I shared on this. Yeah. If you've got any questions on the financial uh, industry, on fintech, the broader ecosystem, I, I highly recommend getting in touch with uh, with Zenon to, to find out more and inform you. Uh, he's got a lot of the answers. Um, we'll put some of those links in the show notes as well. And, and Zenon just wanted to thank you once again for coming on Digital Transformation and Leadership. Really enjoyed the conversation. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Danny. You've made it to the end of another episode of Digital Transformation and Leadership. If you're enjoying the show, please do leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. No need to leave a written review. Just clicking on the five stars is enough. I'd really appreciate it as it helps the show get found and it helps those listener numbers grow. And we'll be back with another top business leader to understand how they're digitally transforming their company. The Digital Transformation and Leadership Podcast is a Blue Aurora Media Production.